Hello, Tom. Hello, Heron. How are you? Ah, it sounds good. Yeah. Uh, so I, I've been listening to the shows that you've recorded in the past week, and I thought we could start talking about uh, anonymity and the fears that were raised by your particular guest about using his real name. Well, go for it. Because certainly I've always used my real name, and I've used my real name for... Yeah, you know, I always have, too. It, it's, I, I don't understand all that stuff. <laughs> I guess, I, I don't know, in terms of what you've done online, and maybe even in your general life as well, have you ever had, um, I don't know, like strange fans or stalkers or these kind of things? Well, I've pissed off a lot of people. I've been shocked at some of the responses i've gotten on usenet posting there oh okay <laughs> that took a while to get used to but they haven't tracked you down they haven't discovered oh no your i haven't well not that they haven't that. left any mementos if they have uh, so i don't uh, know uh, i hope not have you had that oh yes oh yes oh really yeah i've had a in fact it's a funny thing because when i started i i started um writing game software when i was about 13 or 14 and when I was about 15, I started writing antiviral software. And the antiviral software had a, a kind of undesirable component in terms of, you know, virus authors, want to be hackers, these kind of things. So pretty early, I mean, I probably was about 15, 14, 15, when, you know, I started getting strange phone calls at my home number and these kind of things. But oh. at the time, I don't know, I, I guess... In terms of physical things, in terms of actual people, it was probably when I was in my late teens um, that there was a fellow who um, became completely fascinated with me. His name was um, if I remember correctly. And he, um, he couldn't be, if he was in my presence, he would become very twitchy. But he would uh, find people I knew and befriend them. Uh, and he was quite a strange character. Wow. I, I'll, I'll tell you how I first met him. I was in university, in first year university, um, and I was sitting in a philosophy um, lecture theatre, quite a large lecture theatre. It would have sat probably about 400, 500 people. And this fellow sat not next to me, but one seat away from me, and he turned and smiled to me, and I, I looked at him, and I thought, well, I, I don't know this guy. And um, he kept smiling at me and i said oh, do, do i know you and he said oh no no you you don't know me but i know a bit about you and i thought oh okay so anyway we had the tute or the lecture rather and at the end of the lecture um i, I said oh do you know so and so or so and so because he looked i had friends who were in the kind of creative theatrical kind of um there were various groups in in canberra where i'm from like that and he looked like one of those kind of crazy theatrical types yeah. so i said to him oh do you know so and so so and so and he said no i know so and so so and so and so and so and the final name that he mentioned was actually a fellow who was doing a phd at the local university who i knew because i would go into the local university at, from our previous conversation and, and write this antiviral software so as soon as he mentioned his name, and the other two were just precursory people. I mean, he told me that I'd sat next to one of them in like a maths class in high school, and the other person apparently I'd known through similar circumstances. But when he mentioned this this final fellow's name, 
a kind of chill went down me because the only reason that he would mention this fellow's name was if he had some involvement with this guy. And this guy basically was, um, I don't know, just a dysfunctional man in his kind of mid-40s who I guess had you know, various interests in boys in their late teens, mid to late teens. Yeah. So as soon as he mentioned that name to me, I said, oh, okay, well, um, would you like to go out for, you know, a coffee or something? Because, you know, I thought, well, if he knows this fellow, he's probably, you know, messed up from knowing this fellow. So I might as well talk to him. So we went out for a coffee. It was an evening. You're just a much nicer guy than I am. Well, I was more naive then. I wouldn't have done it the same way now. And there's more to the story, but I'll finish the story. So I sat with him, and uh, it was probably about 7.30, 8 o'clock at night. And he produced this album. And he was very twitchy. And I, you know, I, I, I mean, we've described where I'm from in Australia. I'm certainly aware of a variety of you know, uh, drug use um, behaviours, and certainly from my time in LA as well. Um, but he just seemed really strangely twitchy. He produced this album, which he showed to me, and they were photos of me. <laughs> and this yeah. really silly. That's me a little creepy. Yeah. Because he then described, and these were photos of me that were clearly like candid photos of me, just like in various places. I mean, do you know? I mean, had you ever seen any of these photos yourself, or was he taking them? He or? was taking the photos. Oh, I see. Oh, oh, and, okay. Right. Uh, so he proceeded, and I was kind of chilled by this. And he said, we had a conversation for probably about an hour. Just, I was trying to, I was in shock. I mean, you know, this, I was probably 19 at the time, 18, 19. Yeah. Uh, he was about my age. And um, he said to me at the end of this conversation, do you think we can be friends? And I said, I don't think we probably can be friends from what you've described. Um, and I went away from the situation and I told a group of my friends who hadn't met up with this fellow. He had really stuck to very fringe people and... Uh, I had seen him in various locations, uh, and certainly I saw him after uh, those locations. There was one, uh, well, there were a couple of incidents where I actually approached him and told him not to take a photograph of me. But this fellow, um, I told my friends about it, and a number of my friends said, oh, you know, this is nuts, Tom, what, what have you. And within about a year's time, uh, one of my close female friends uh, approached me and said that she had met him and that he was considerably worse than the way I'd described. Yeah. Yeah. And he'd kind of degenerated even further. Based on that, I met him and a, a woman who I was doing, she was in one of my maths uh, tutorials at university. And he was very jumpy then. And he was kind of chain smoking cigarettes and dropping them on the ground and all these kind of things. Yeah. I said, this is really unacceptable. You've just got to stop doing this. I know, you know, it's compulsion or what have you, but you've just got to stop doing this. And about a year later, another one of my friends met him at a party. And my and he, he scared this female friend. She was very upset when she met him because she didn't, I mean, she'd heard about him. I told her about him, but she didn't understand what having him embodied yeah, in front yeah. of her would be actually be like. And this other friend who's actually a very close friend of mine was very disturbed by him because he produced a photo of me and stabbed it with a knife and described that he was going to do the same thing to me. He was just off the planet. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah but uh, just this was probably about a year before I left Australia pretty well for good. And just before I was leaving Australia, I saw him at a distance and I'd heard from a friend that he'd actually um, had drunk some methylated spirits or something and it had damaged his vision. 
Uh, and I saw this fellow wandering around the supermarket with a, a woman uh, at the time, and it, it just dawned on me that this fellow was just a pathetic character and not yeah. really meriting any of my concern. I think particularly because it was a three probably a four-year period that I knew him. That's probably the longest term. But now, occasionally, I just get nuts that, you know, don't stop emailing me, or even worse, they find my home phone number occasionally. But they're few and far between. Well, you're between. not like, well, yeah, that guy's not. I, my material tends to upset people uh, who have political agendas or any other, other kinds of agendas, you know, people who are stuck in their story. And some Good. of them... And that's always sort of worried me. I haven't had any real problems. I mean, I like I said, I've pissed off people and, and had them intentionally sort of sabotage my casts by coming in and just being, you know, just yeah. bombing me with text and all sorts of stuff. Sure. You know, but uh, it's always been something that sort of worried me about becoming public figure you know i mean if i mean on the it's a it's a dichotomy that i'm still really struggling with because on the one hand i really want to get my work into the world and probably Mm. in order to do that i'm going to have to step forward yes you know and and that i but i just don't like that position i don't Mm. like being a front man i'd gladly hire an actor to play (laughs) me you know yes yeah. But it seems that that's going to be an important. I mean, I, I can't found a way around that to actually be effective without putting myself in front, and I and I'm still not comfortable with that. Yes, I think there are still situations, even in general life. I mean, you don't need to be a front person to still get this kind of unwanted attention, and I think well, certainly. Well, but I'm a hermit. Remember, see, you're you're way more out in the world than I am. Yeah. No, I don't know. I mean, we I, need to meet one day, Heron, so I can prove you wrong. But <laughs> well, no, but I mean, you're much, you're better known than I mean. Nobody knows who I, I'm. Really, pretty anonymous. You're not, you know. So you're <laughs> obviously going to run into more of this. But that's the thing: is if I become more effective, then I'm going to have to put up with the same shit you're putting up with. So, if, if the more recent cases, there was an individual who felt that I had slighted him. He appeared on a couple of podcasts and. Um, through a somewhat heated discussion, basically he he contradicted himself quite noticeably, and from that kind of developed this obsession, which went into quite disturbed emails. And then, um, so I mean, my feeling is that the, these kind of people, particularly, well, how um, do you deal with that? I mean, so I mean, what do you do? See, my well, my tendency would be to write him one response and then ignore everything after that. I I engaged him for about a week, mainly because it was also involving other people I knew, and then I completely disengaged from the situation. Yeah. Which and that usually pre- ends it. For, at least it always has for me, anyway. Yes, I, I have to agree. After there. a while, I, they get bored and go away. <laughs> basically, so I mean, I think that's the, the way these things work. Um, but I've never had a fear of. I, I guess I don't really have a fear of these circumstances anyway. I mean, this... Well, I don't understand these people's fear of... Well, it's yeah, it's it's not... It's just about being known. I mean, they don't... You know, they just... I don't know. They're, I, I was because people think that they are powerless little, you know, atoms, and that somebody out there, some unknown anonymous force, is is going to use the information against them. 
The other thing is very few people, I mean, you through design and I guess me in part through design as well, we have relatively unique names. But most of the people in the general populace have at least, you know, 10, 15, 100, 200 people that have exactly the same name as them. So the whole notion of once you put yourself to your name, you're immediately giving away all your social yeah, security well, yeah. details <laughs> yeah. and all this other stuff. Which Just, isn't even true. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I think LinkedIn has shown me that because even when I know people that have relatively obscure names, there still seem to be half yeah, a dozen people with that yeah, name yeah. at a particular yeah. location. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah, I think the this is, I mean, I, when we first started doing these calls, this was this idea with regards to Facebook and the whole notion of privacy that people want in some regard but don't really understand in another regard. I don't understand. Yeah, privacy to, to me seems like such a non-issue. Yeah, I mean, what? I mean, there are things that I, there are things about, you know, having OCD, there are certain things that I just don't talk about with people. Certainly. You know, and and I just don't, if I don't want anybody to know stuff, I just simply don't talk about it in my political or philosophical or views on drugs or anything. I just yeah. don't really give a shit what people know. Yeah. There's also something very ethereal about what we do in terms of these podcast recordings. I mean, you have, you know, probably tens, if not hundreds of hours worth of audio recorded, as I do as well. And Thousands, feel, actually. Yes. Well, yes. <laughs> true. I'm talking about just what's publicly accessible. Oh, so, right. oh, okay. so, yeah, well, probably. Well, yeah, you notice the last three things I put up were from 2006. Right. Right. So, yes, but even that, I mean, this is what strikes me. I, I, as you know, I've just come back from these Bay Area talks, and they just now exist in this volume of audio. It's yeah. kind of funny because particularly the SRI talk was, for me, you know, the first public talk that I've done in 10 years. Uh -huh. And yet it's now just part of a stream of audio where it's a very small portion of that, and it's important yeah. it seems to kind of fade into that. Well, it's just one more talk. Very much so. Very much so. Yeah. But well, uh, what else could it be? <laughs> I don't know. I think the the thing about it is, particularly at that location, I followed, even though I haven't been there, I followed a number of the talks that have been done at Stanford uh, Research Institute over, I guess, the past three years. Some of them have had quite large crowds. Oh, the, yeah, that's quite... How many people showed up to your thing? Very, very few people. Yeah, how, well, embarrassingly number of small people. Yeah, well, I mean, you could have beat them all up yourself, probably. I could have. Uh, yeah, I could have taken them out and left without anyone knowing. Um, aside from the... Um, well, no, seriously, how many? Was it 10? Or No, not? no. I think... Let me let me actually work it out. Jeffrey Ventrella... I can actually name them, there were so few. Jeffrey Ventrella, Rick Arthur, uh, well, why, why do you think that is? I'm thinking you didn't do much PR because I mean. Well, this is this, this is the argument. The reality is a lot of people were out of the Bay Area for that period of time. But I also anticipate that what we do with these recordings is actually give people a sense that they don't actually need to come to the. You know, well, that's true. That's true. Yeah. So yeah. I was thinking about this because in terms of Facebook friends, whatever that might mean, I have you know roughly two hundred odd in the Bay Area who I pinged for this talk. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. And so I guess, I don't know. I, oh, do, I did get a number of yeah, okay, yeah. But I get the sense that, I don't know. I, 
Yeah, what more can they... Well, see, I understand that because I don't really need anything more from you than what I'm getting right now. I mean, this wouldn't be any better if we were sitting at Starbucks. In fact, it probably wouldn't be as good. Yes, yes. I, I agree, I agree. But I think what interests me, particularly with regards to what we do here in terms of moving this potentially in another format is just to get a sense of what the audience is listening for as well. And certainly in your wow. in your recent podcast in the feed, I've tried to think about how, for example, do you see, get... A... i got to stop you, see, because I don't give a shit about the audience. I've never cared about them. I'm here <laughs> for me. Very good. I'm here to have a conversation with somebody that I find interesting or that finds me interesting or that's interested in the same stuff I'm interested in. And if the audience doesn't like it, hell with them. I don't care. I put it out there for people who might like it. But it's only, the only reason I do it is for me. I have to agree. I mean, that's that's what I do mind for as well. I think the, you're right, there is, there is this, there is this movement from the self to the other that I seem to find with regards to these things. And you're right, it's in fact liberating not to do these, this, this, this move and just to actually enjoy the, the moment, the communication and the, the ideas yeah, that are being communicated. It's awesome. It's what I live for, you know. And the fact that it's also useful to other people who might also be interested in this stuff really adds the icing to the cake because there are people listening to this stuff. And Certainly. even though one of them's 20 minutes and the next one's two hours long, they're not the same. There's no formula. There's no nothing. It's just some idiots talking. <laughs> mm. And certainly what I picked up, and this came through a conversation that I had with my wife in the past week, is this idea of talking. This thing, I mean, when, when I first started dating my wife, a point that she made was that I was unlike many of the men or almost all the men that she had interacted with previously because I could actually carry on a conversation. <laughs> yeah, right. And this was a thing which she thought was, and she's sitting literally arm's length away from me um, as I say this, but this was something which she thought was unique to my relationship well, with her. Idiots. as opposed to well, yeah, You haven't I think, figured that out yet? Men are <laughs> fucking idiots. They're <laughs> shallow, posturing, uh, sports statistics mm. morons. Yeah. Who talk about know. technical I, shit? I just don't have the same low view of humanity that you have, Heron. I, I find that I'm, I'm always... I'm, well, look, I mean, not all of them. I mean, only probably 95% of them. No, there's some see, great people out there. You and I are having fun talking. <laughs> but uh, no, I was thinking about this whole notion of actually what the conversation is and certainly um, the strengths that we both seem to see and the ability, firstly, to talk at length on a variety of topics, but also the idea of a flowing conversation. I mean, for example, in your previous recordings, and particularly people that are just discovering Skype, there's almost this kind of, there are substantial pauses between thoughts and ideas, which I think certainly those of us that have explored the medium for long periods of time or just have been general talkers for most of our lives don't seem to have the same kind of problem with the medium. I'm not sure I understand what you just said. So, for example, um, for the people that you are just finding in terms of the stuff that you've released recently... You're there are about the three from 2006, is that what you mean? Uh, possibly. I think you've released more than three recently, haven't you? Well, I mean, I, I, I released those three archive things in the last two days. Right, okay. I, I probably haven't heard those then. I'm actually thinking of the... Okay, then you're... Okay. The, I'm still catching up. Yeah, okay. All right, up. yeah. But there's this idea, I guess... And again, I don't know what's there because I don't pay any attention. I don't care. 
<laughs> I record them and I post them. I don't know. I have no idea what was there. It was the last few people I talked to, wherever that was. Mm, I, I guess my my question back to you is this: this notion of the the language that goes on, which is independent from the self. If that language. What I find is that most people have that language in terms of their expression of it, at least, very heavily stifled anyway. And do you, what's, the, what's yeah. the connection between what people say, the language that's going on inside them and the self in terms of your perspective? Well, I don't know what the word self means. Honestly, I've just given up on that word. I mean, I well, use it. I still say, oh, I know, I know, but that, that's what I'm saying. Is that whole concept of identity strikes me as very suspicious. Whether mm. I exist... I is a is a facet of English grammar that is so ingrained into our way of thinking about the world that it's hard to figure out that in the world there be, may be absolutely nothing that corresponds to this grammatical part of speech. Okay, so let me ask you another question. In terms of the internal language and the way it is represented externally, what is the distinction there, or oh, is it just well, one? Well, I, the difference is whether it gets channeled out or not. I'd say there's an internal monologue going on probably all the time, even when you're asleep. You know, it, it, it's not in grammatical, you know, sentences, complete thoughts and stuff, but there's just this stream of languaging going on inside. Mm. And, and then occasionally... Um, it gets channeled out to the mouth and, you know, I mean, a different, like what you and I are doing right now is quite different than what's going on in my language machine when I'm just sitting here staring out the door. So the language machine is directly represented in what one says as well, as opposed to just the kind of internal narrative. It's all language. All. Yeah, it's all language. It's just so, sometimes it's shunted out to the mouth and, some, and most of the time it's not. So for people that speak in a stifled way, for people that pause or have difficulty, is that a representation of their internal language as well, do you think? I don't know. It could be, but it might not be. It may be that, they're, that they've developed a style from infancy on uh, of actually thinking during the process of constructing sentences. That would be very odd, but maybe that's what's going on. I have no idea. I'm not sure I, I know what you're talking about. I, I'd probably have to listen to, if you could tell me a, a specific place in one of those things, I'd like to to listen to it. And, um, you know, so if you run into any of these things, again, keep some time. <laughs> I'll provide you time codes. And yeah, yeah I'm, I'm serious. I mean, if, you, if you're actually going to go to the trouble to listen to this stuff, hmm. uh, if you find interesting things that we need to talk about, then I would say let me know what they are and I'll listen to them and then we can talk about it. Certainly. I guess I'm sympathetic to the idea of the internal language and the way in which it is a perturbation. And certainly I've never used the term I. Perhaps my use of the term the self is problematic as well. What, is, there, is there any notion of authenticity that's under all of this, Heron? It depends on what you mean by authenticity. That's one of the reifications. It's one of the five stupidities. Okay. Authenticity. Okay. So I'm trying to no. I was thinking of the authentic self. I'm trying to think of ways of saying it without. Well, see, that's what I'm saying is you're you're trying to put together a string of words. You're mm -hmm. looking for a string of words. Presumably, there is some referent for that. See, what I'm questioning is whether there's actually a referent at all, but that we haven't just accustomed ourselves to speaking in certain ways. And but you can unplug from you can unplug from the language machine, can't you? 
uh, I'm not sure. No, I don't think I can because I think I is a figment of the language machine itself. So it, that can happen, but I'm not sure it's something that, it, that an I can do. But there are times when the, when, when there seem, when the language machine seems to drop away. Right. I'm, not, I'm not sure that it's gone or whether my, whatever that is, attention is elsewhere. Um, but see, this whole concept of self, to me, is, I think, one of the fundamental flaws in Western culture and, and intellect is that we've been using these forms of talk to articulate ideas that that are just really stupid and primitive and that we need to rethink this whole thing. Is there an aspect of dualism in what you're saying in terms of the notion of the meat and the language? Let's call it the meat, because maybe you have no objection to the idea of the meat or maybe the monkey yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. So so is this almost a, a dualist perspective? I don't think so. I think you can distinguish between the stuff and the behavior of the stuff. It doesn't mm -hmm. set up a separate realm of, of abstract uh, existence or anything. Uh, uh, it's just that you can distinguish between stuff and the way stuff behaves, patterns of, of movement in the stuff. Mm. So let's explore a little bit more about this idea of the internal language and the external language, because that's something that interests me in terms of describing well, what we do here, um, but also the notion that when you meet someone, when you interact with someone for a period of time, through the way they talk, you get a better sense of their internal language as well. Is this something that you, you're sympathetic to? Yeah, I would think the more time you spend with people. Oh, I don't know if you, I wouldn't say it that. I wouldn't say it the way you just said that. Mm -hmm. I would just say the more time you spend with somebody, if you're paying attention, mm -hmm. the more you learn about them. Now, just exactly what that may have to do with their the way their internal language patterns go, I think that's a tricky proposition. <laughs> I think you'd have to really explore that consciously to to. I just say, generally speaking, it makes sense. Yes, you, you, the more time you spend with someone, if you're intelligent and paying attention, uh, you're going to learn about how they operate. So there's an idea of deception and counter-deception that I'm exploring currently in Noble Ape, uh -huh. where basically it's to do with the fact that there appears to be an ability for humans to not only deceive but also counter deceive and the relationship what do you mean by counter deceive counter deceive is where you are not only my understanding of this and it could be wrong is it's the idea not only where um Let, i i got to stop you for a second your mm -hmm. understanding of it cannot possibly be wrong it may be different than somebody else's or the generally accepted one this is my point this uh, is my point okay so there may be people that are listening maybe who have heard it. This is my point. I'm not saying that I'm the be-all, end-all. I'm yeah, just right. throwing ideas out there. Okay. So deception is is the easy concept. Basically, yeah. you, you, you're lying. But the notion of counter-deception is that you are propagating the deception but also aware of the deception and it works to reinforce. So let me... Let me it's a social yeah, phenomenon. 
Okay. I mean, you know, there's a good example of, of uh, chimpanzees deceiving by giving food calls in places where there is no food and they've mm. found food somewhere else. You know about that. Certainly. Okay, so well, that's, like a, that's like the paradigm case for deception. My example <laughs> of counter-deception, which is probably wrong, but it's a good one, is that when I know someone is lying to me, I lie back to them to reaffirm that I'm telling them that they're lying to me. <laughs> Okay. So, yeah, I, I got you. But now you're playing a game. That's a whole. Yeah, you're right. That's a whole different game than just lying. Certainly. You're right. That's meta lying. Certainly. That's exactly my point. But yeah. I don't. I my my mind is not good with regards to counterception currently. I had a couple of good examples previously, which just aren't coming back to me. We'll return to this a future discussion. I'm just interested in how this maps into internal and external language, uh -huh. okay. um, particularly because of, of the stuff. But something you mentioned is sleep. And this is something which fascinates me, obviously, through Nobelite, but also personally as well. And I don't think through the conversations that I've heard you talk particularly about this idea of language through sleep. Can mm -hmm. you expand on that a little more? Uh, well, I, in my dreams, I am often talking, and there is language going on of some sort. It's pretty bizarre, it seems, sometimes, but I'm clearly aware of that. And mm. uh, people talk in their sleep out loud. Mm. So I'm just... And my experience is that the language machine is basically going on all the time. It, it probably behaves quite differently during sleep, but I wouldn't be surprised if the language machine is generating strings of uh, phonemes uh, most of the day, hmm. most of the night. Uh, the organization of it, though, may vary. I mean, like right now, I mean, this is highly structured, complex, with parenthetical clauses sure. and everything. Uh, but when my... You know, when I'm just sitting on the porch looking at the sunset, it's just, you know, it's barely stream of consciousness. It's words repeated over and over again or, or phrases that trail off into non-words or just all sorts of bizarre things. That It's just the kind of stuff that you hear from crazy people who talk to themselves. Mm. You know, except the only difference between them and me is that I learned to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> so in terms of your... Your meditation and your various insights through this, have you gotten into dream control and astral projection and all no, this kind of stuff? No, I, um, I, I've only recently started, I know, they say you dream all the time, so whatever. <laughs> but in any case, I've only recently started remembering dreaming again. It seemed mm -hmm. that for many years, I never remembered having dreamt, and um, you know, for maybe 20 years. And recently, I've started dreaming again. It's great fun. Even the ones that are a little bit weird, you know, are still great fun. <laughs> you know? Have you have you thought about why you've started dreaming again? Has anything changed in your life recently which would cause you to start I, dreaming again? I have again? no idea. I mean, I'm, apparently something has changed. And everything hmm. is always in ch change. So, you know, I mean, at what point, you know, does a change become significant? You know, I mean, it, it could be an accumulation of of sort of continuous change and it reaches a certain point that's not noticeable in any other way except that maybe it pops out as now I'm dreaming. Mm. You know? I have very different dreams when I'm on holiday or in a different state versus... You, you dream every... I mean, you remember working. dreaming every day? Uh, pretty well, yeah. pretty well. But I have very different... St I mean, when I'm working uh, and, you know, what have you, the dreams that I have are typically very calming and also things that I can have control over. From a relatively young age, I was really fascinated by sleep, and particularly the idea of control in sleep and also insight through sleep. And it's something which um, I don't... I sleep very lightly, 
But um, the dreams that I have when I'm working are normally very reinforcing uh, familiar places, these kind of things, but also a direct sense of control. And when I'm on holiday or when I'm in a different place, I have completely different kinds of dreams. Um, But what I found in particular is that I get amazing insights through my dreams that have to be reinforced. I have to um, either think about them, talk about them, or make note of them uh, in, in such a way. And I actually find it a very powerful part of, of the mind. Um, it's something which obviously I, I put into Noble Ape as well. But personally, I found dreaming in terms of just being able to decompress and understand things that I could never understand through my waking life and also understand relationships, which is something which um, I've tried to tried to kind of verbalize um, with, with various people, particularly um, uh, people that have a background in psychology, um, in terms of how one actually does this. And the, they tend to reinforce uh, the methods that I've used, but particularly because uh, I guess I find myself overwhelmed with information on a pretty regular basis. It's how I kind of consume that information, decompress it, and also put it together um, that I use uh, sleep state for. Um, and also I have familiar places and dreams where I will return to and can kind of forcibly return to in order to decompress certain things. Um, I guess it was from a childhood experience of just having a lot of recursive nightmares and being able to deal with that at a relatively early age. But I find sleep really when critical. When you say recursive, you mean repetitive nightmares? No, um, not just repetitive nightmares, which were um, which uh, every I would have the, the same kind of end triggers, but they would get deeper and deeper and more and more elaborate, basically. Oh, okay. So it was like, um, for example, there was a dream that I had. Um, probably six, seven, eight years of age, which was a Western-style dream, and always involved uh, faceless bandits that would progressively... And the dream was very elaborate in terms of the framing of the environment to the point where I could actually draw maps of the environment. Mm -hmm. When I was three, my parents moved to the UK, and I flew... It was a 26-hour flight stopping in Bahrain, And through that flight, they were um, airing a film that involved a number of slow and very bloody death sequences. um, When you were three years old? Yeah, which kind of framed a lot of my experiences, and particularly people getting shot and bleeding out of their stomachs and their chests (laughs) for long periods of time. So... This uh, this oh, was a yeah. and the Do you other remember thing, this or oh this, yes yeah. yes in fact I tried to find the actual films that I was watching and not being able to but certainly my parents remember it and I remember it very well we landed in Bahrain and also to experience you know when we're wearing burkas and just very different kind of environment uh, for even a short period of time and then to I mean to come from Australia to the UK and certainly my experiences in the UK and travelling around um, Italy. Uh, at France with my mother um, while my father was at Cambridge was was pretty impactful in terms of a wide variety of things. Um, but I guess my sense the kind of faceless men, and also I had a few strange experiences seeing my father at a distance at a very young age where I couldn't interact with him and he just kind of wandered off, which very much represented my relationship with my father through my, um, well, up until my 20s, basically. So all these things created a kind of, and I'd never been to, I'd never been to a Western environment. So it was a very surreal, uh, surreal place. But I would have these dreams, which would start in the same sequence, and then just get more and more elaborate, basically. 
Uh, and that was one of the ones that is easy to remember because I mapped out the space and tried to work out how I could get away from these faceless bandits in my waking time as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so I've had dreams since then that have been similar um, and considerably more kind of graphic and disturbing. And basically I've realized that rather than being defined by these kind of experiences, the best way to do it is is decompress, understand, but also un- get a sense of implicit control. Well, first uh, got to just examine it. Well, you know, sure. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. that's, you know, a lot of people, uh, they see something like that and they just turn away. They don't mm. want to look at it. And that's mm. that's not the right way to do it. <laughs> but in, in, in my more recent life particularly as i've been i've lived in a number of places in my adult life and not returned to those places i very briefly saw the area of sunnyvale that i used to live in in uh in the bay area for example but didn't really get off i wandered through some familiar areas while i was there but not a number of the areas that i wanted to see so a lot of my dreams actually and particularly the time in the uk uh reinforced these times and these areas and there were parts of the i mean we saw probably half well, no, probably closer to a dozen cities in uh the uk well large towns up to cities but the sufficient number of medieval architecture just remembering various turns down alleyways and you would end up in in bazaars like with people kind of hanging things off uh off walls and all this kind of stuff very easily in certain parts of the uk so i had this kind of returning to i guess three four year old um you know, childhood-like experiences in my uh, mid to late 20s, which have kind of reinforced those environments. My wife as well, similarly, has these kind of dreams too about um, returning to the UK and just these amazing streets, which, you know, probably Roman medieval streets and wandering through them and having elaborate conversations and meeting people. And I think certainly my dream space has been impacted very much by my actual space and the need to return to these environments at particular times. Um, but I think the dream, I think you're right. The ability to actually analyze these things, think about them and have this sense of control over them in some regard or utilize them um, has really been quite critical. Well, you know, one of the things about an- analysis is that it separates you from it. You know, it, I, I, yeah. you are the one studying it. And it becomes an it, as opposed to uh, I or me. Uh, But in the process of studying it, all you're doing is embodying the you in it. I mean, when you study something, it's not... This is the whole notion of actually solving problems through thinking about them where you can't actually solve them in reality, which is the great problem of the thinking mind, that you'll encounter things which are not things that you can solve actually, that you try to solve through many iterations in your own mind that don't actually affect the real world. I mean, my sense with what you're describing is, in fact, what you are doing is making you more part of it as you analyze it rather than distancing yourself from it. Well, that's not the way I see it, but you're welcome to your way. <laughs> well, I, it, it seems to me that, in fact, this is part of this thing about meditation and studying the output of the language machine, that 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 very act is what allows you to disidentify from the language machine by studying it. Because the one that is studying it is not the language machine itself, if it's the thing doing the studying. And it creates the otherness of the language machine. 
But is the is the one doing the studying capable of creating an authentic idea? Again, sorry, this is this is a word you don't like. A a unique idea in the context. I mean, surely the one doing the studying needs to identify all the problems associated with the language machine and somehow remove themselves from it in a unique fashion in order to be truly removed. Well, I'm not sure. Yeah, I wouldn't go all. Listen, I would say <laughs> that that there are no clear distinctions in these domains. I mean, the distinctions are the ones you draw, and their their authority is simply on having drawn the distinctions. They can be drawn any way you want to. So that kind of precision, I think, probably is. Uh, Unattainable. Well, you can you can obtain it, but you obtain it only because you declare it. I mean, if you're looking for more justification than that, I don't think there is any. What interested me about one of your recent conversations, I think, with Kathy M, was this idea. Okay, that's of, that's that's um, one of the 2006 ones. Okay, yes, okay. So you have recently or, released old yeah. conversations. Yeah, right. Well, no, but you said you were you thought you weren't up to date. You are up to date. Okay, yeah. very good, very good. Is this idea of I guess the external responsibility of gurus or people who will in some way enlighten you through listening to them or being in their presence or learning yeah. from them yeah. and I think this is I guess the really the antithesis of what you're describing because what you're talking about really, will you get learning from these people in order to understand, or is it really something that one can do um, a priori, to use a, probably a yeah. bad philosophical yeah. term? Um, what's the role of the external person in explaining this to you, or is it something which you could do without ever seeking out another person oh, to I explain think I, Well, to first of all, we can't, we are not isolated. I mean... You know, we're influenced by everybody we come into contact with. Mm. Whether we con come into contact with those kinds of forces, I mean, I got it was a book that woke me up. If I mean that mm. book by Alan Watts in 1967 changed my life irrevocably from that moment forward. I was not yes. the same person ten that seconds may, later. That may also be based on what you'd consumed prior. Oh, no, to not uh, could be. Certainly, it was the combination of everything that led me to that point and that input. That input, I might have read it 10 minutes earlier, and it might not have meant anything to me. But at that moment, all those things converged. No, but So it's not, yes, it's not one or the other. It's the totality of the universe at that moment of space-time. So this is leaving me a lot of food for thought. I'm going to have to decompress this, Heron, and have to think about it. But I wanted to, I wanted to raise another thing with you, which has only just caught me covertly, but seems to be a recurring thing certainly in my recent life and it also is this notion of uh, history legacy and has some strange connection to the second world war as well so my family name is is in theory unique it was a concoction somewhere between my father and my grandfather and there are as you could count them maybe 16 maybe 22 barbelays that uh, are alive and breathing today, many of them from On marriage. The whole planet, yeah. Yes. Yeah, okay. So there are, however, a group of people called Barblats who you put an A instead of an E uh -huh. uh, in the final. And 
these people periodically contact me. They don't seem to contact any other Barbelay, but they contact me probably for reasons <laughs> that we've discussed and claim that we are related, that we are all part of the same uh, same brotherhood. And uh, present, for example, there is an Oscar Barbelat who worked at CERN who developed uh, the numbering system for all their screws and various other things and their linear accelerator. And there's a, there's a Barbelat's lemmer and there's a politician in Romania called Barbelat. These people um, have a very strange notion of family history, which links them back to being French nobility at some time, although strangely ending up in Romania. And they want to always include uh, us Barbelais in this narrative, even though um, my father and I, with the two primary Barbelais that have had contact with these people, just think they're nuts. Um, <laughs> and the the strange thing about all of this is that it's um, it all goes back to the Second World War and basically... Uh, you know, what what happened at uh, concentration camps and the fracturing of families and the inability to know anything about a particular history and the need to know psychologically. Yeah. But uh, certainly it's it's something that I think about with because you can convince yourself of a reality that is in no way, in no way real, but it is in fact based... I, I think about this with regards to gurus in particular, that you can just snap people, particularly those that want to be snapped, in a direction which will take them completely, uh, in a completely tangential direction to their prior life. Yeah. Um, and yeah, this whole notion of how, if one maintains the same language, same internal language, is it that one becomes disgusted with one's own internal language or? How does that work in terms of your theory of language? Wait a minute. You, uh, how does what you mean? How is it that somebody can get recruited into a cult? You mean? Is, is that well, no, I mean, as an example? Okay. So what you've described with regards to reading Watts in the late '60s is that you literally snapped yeah. into a tangential yeah. direction, which gave you a degree of insight. I you wouldn't could call it ta back well, okay, tangential. That that. That's an unnecessary word. It totally changed my perceptions of who I was and what I was doing in the world and what I should do and what I could do and what I knew and what I didn't know. Essentially, what it did is it just pulled the rug out from underneath me. Mm -hmm. I had no basis for making any kinds of decisions whatsoever as a result of about 10 seconds. So did you repent against your internal language then and form new internal language? How, how did you... Oh, no, I, I wasn't on to linguistics at that point at all. I mean, no, it was another 13 years before. I mean, Watts talks a lot about language, mm. and but I read you... most of Watts. So, uh, But it wasn't until I read Korzybski and, like, you know, probably 10 or 12 years later that I, be I began to see the importance of language. Well, a stone is an acolyte of Wittgenstein, to be, to be stony and back at you. The idea that the language is everything within the self and the idea that everything maps back onto this language, how can you explain a change that you experienced in terms of reading what's uh, with regards to what was it, going on with uh, your language? It, it, there apparently, well, see, there's, one of the ways I talk about this is the difference between understanding a concept and getting it. Because what happened to me in that moment was not new information. You know, I mean, essentially, it wasn't this in particular, but it's basically that vase, face, foreground, background 
perception thing. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I've, I've been aware of that concept that what we see is uh, what we expect to see or what we're told we're going to see and that the, the reality is itself is uh, ambivalent and can be structured any number of ways. Mm. The concept was something I, I, I already knew. But what happened in that moment was that I realized that that applied to, to everything I thought I knew about myself and the world and reality, that all <laughs> of that was just the way I'd been taught to see it, and that it could be parsed completely differently and in any a number of other ways, and that the idea of reality, the way it really is, was, was a, a form of insanity. Of course, I couldn't have said this back then. Like mm. I say, I was just left dumbfounded. I, I realized that I, I had no basis for, for doing anything or thinking anything. I was just, I mean, honestly, I stayed in the house for like three days. So were you reprogramming your, your language? No, I was just <laughs> staring at the wall trying to figure out what the hell was going on. Like I say, I wasn't very sophisticated. Up until that moment, I'd never read a book in my life. I was not interested in this kind of stuff. I was interested in getting laid in cars and watching television. That was the only thing that interested me. I never, I'd never read a book. I, I didn't. I watched TV. I tried to get laid. You know, that was it. That was my life. <laughs> you were in the Air Force. Yes. So. You had a desk job in the Air Force? Yes. Which would involve some reading, I'm assuming. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, but I mean, when I say I never read, I mean, I didn't read books. You know, I mean, the idea of going to the library or a bookstore, it would never have occurred to me. Why would anybody read a book when, uh, you know, Star Trek was on? But you had to... Did you go to college after? Oh, your I, no, I read. No, I've, I read. I mean, I did get through school. I read what I was assigned to. But again, that was just something that I had to do. It, it had nothing to do with me. You know, I mean, occasion. There had been a couple of books I did along the way read Catcher in the Rye, and I thoroughly enjoyed that. <laughs> Very good. That was assigned in some class, and I read The Planet of the Apes, and that mm. blew me away too. There were a mm. couple things uh, that I did read, but you know, it never seemed to catch. It was just like, oh, that was cool, and it didn't dawn on me that there might be other things that were even cooler. You know, it's just like, oh, okay, nice, and then I'd go back to TV. Mm. I was basically, you know, your average unconscious language monkey. Mm. It's funny because your description of Taiwan in particular is very, uh, very much part of Catcher in the Rye in some in some way. But I think it's interesting. Catcher in the Rye is a book that I return to frequently as well, particularly because of this book that I wrote when I was 17 is, has el strong elements of Catcher in the Rye in it, too, as I guess every 17-year-old <laughs> mind still is, is in that fashion. So, yeah, yeah I, I, yes. it is amazing because it is a book which um, certainly for me, when I went to uh, New England and New York and that whole area, I felt that I'd been there before in large part from reading Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It, it was, uh, you know, there are, and there are a couple of books. I mean, I look back, there, there were several books that actually did get to me, you know, and made an impact. But somehow it, it just got sealed off. 
<laughs> you know, it, yeah. they were just in there, these little things. It was years later, you know, again, that all these things began to come. And again, it was that moment when I was 21 when all this stuff, yeah, ah, see, that may be part of what happened. There, there were other, lots of moments of things that never seemed to get connected. Mm. And maybe that's part of the dynamics of what happened at that time in 67 is that somehow the boundaries between those things were broken or something. Mm. And uh, and they all sort of flooded up. Mm. I, I sometimes think of knowledge as like dynamite. In, in, or it, it can be. It's like you have this huge structure of some sort and that every little piece of knowledge you get blows up <laughs> some part of that structure. And, and that that... And then at some point, the whole structure <laughs> gets creaky enough so that one more little bit destroys the whole thing and it falls down. And then you're, and that's what happened to me at that moment. At that point, each little bit of knowledge begins to allow you to take those pieces of what was the knowledge before and recombine them in a way of your own liking. Mm. Mm. Yeah. No. This is this is the notion as you as you describe it of being turned on the spot, kind of mentally. And yeah. realizing, yeah, that everything that you've consumed up until that point is, is well, basically... I think uh, what the, the fire sign theater said, everything you know is wrong. Mm. <laughs> and that's really exactly what it is. You know? Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, for your listeners, uh, if they're interested in Catcher in the Rye, I read a book probably in my late teens, around the time that I started No Blade, called Let Me Take You Down which is the account of Mark Chapman as he hunted oh, John Lennon. Wow. And that is basically, it's written in the style of Catcher in the Rye, but it really very much wow. uh, gives the kind of Catcher in the Rye a few years on gone terribly wrong. Oh, man, uh, that's, a, that's a scary idea. Have you read that book? No, I haven't. But he uh, talks about, um, it's an amazing account it? of mental illness. It's, um, it's not written by him, but it's written through interviews with him. I normally have, it's downstairs, unfortunately, in my library, otherwise I'd grab it. To me but, um, yeah. What's the name uh, of the book? Oh, well, let me take let you Let me down. take you down. Yeah. It's, a, it's an amazing account of mental illness, mm-hmm. an amazing account of reconstructing these kind of very much in the catcher in the rye framing in terms mm, yeah. of parcels of life. Well, you can see it. Yeah, you can just see it. You know, it, it wouldn't take much to put Holden Caulfield in that same place. Yes, very much so. You know? Very much so. Wow. Well, Heron, you've, you've left me with a lot of food for thought. My wife wants to do some elaborate kind of craft printing thing that's going to make a lot of noise. So uh, <laughs> I think she's, she's giving me the it's time to wrap it's up the call. Uh, <laughs> okay. But one thing I wanted to leave you with, I, from our last conversation, I scanned the photos of Thailand that I referenced. Um, in particular, the uh, Sun Wukong is the Monkey King's uh, name in Chinese, and you commented at the Chinese script. My understanding is that uh, it's it is a Chinese it is a Chinese fable. Uh-huh. Uh, which is probably why the monks that did the painting also put the Chinese Well, it may up. very well have been a Chinese monastery. I mean, China, well you be. know, yeah, yeah, just the fact that it happens to be in Thailand now. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I thought if we were going to if we were going to spin this off into a separate podcast, I would probably call it Stone Monkey um, to reference that, because that's the, the Sun Wukong was born from a rock. It's, he's a, it's quite a striking... Uh, mythical character, this Monkey King. Um, but I'm going to have to read Journey to the West, um, which is the book 
that primarily uh, discusses his, his adventures, although apparently there are other books as well. Um, to reaffirm my uh, recollections of uh, the Monkey King, uh, because certainly I think whenever I hear people talk about uh, various ideas in Buddhism, the uh, the mythology that goes along with it strikes me as being just as important as the as the kind of primary uh, Buddhist teachings. Well, that's interesting because see, I have my tradition is Zen, and Zen mm. doesn't give a shit about any of that. <laughs> yes. You know, uh, texts from ancient enlightened beings and all that shit and statues is just totally irrelevant. Buddha is irrelevant. Mm. But I understand that, you know, for people who consider themselves to be Buddhists, I inhabit a couple of uh, Buddhist news groups, and they Mm. take all that stuff very seriously. I mean, those are the metaphors they live by. Mm. Well, Heron, a lot more food for thought. And I'm going to have to tie the crazy barbed lats back into the, what we were talking about in some way because I don't think I did the <laughs> justice in this conversation. <laughs> Next time. In a week's time, Heron. It's been fun. Take okay. care. Good night, Tom. See you.